Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we've been considering when the gospel is being perverted. And so we have dealt with the perversion that was going on in the churches of Galatia. And that perversion was that you were saved by works. Now, ultimately, we know in the context of everything from other epistles and even in the book of Acts that what was going on is this was being presented in addition to Jesus Christ. It was more of a cooperative view. And so the cooperative view was this, that um, in, in the first century, um, especially coming from the Jewish believers to the Gentile believers, and that was that, that yeah, you, were, you, you had to trust and you had to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but then you had to be circumcised, and then you had to perform all these different works according to the law in order to be justified. And so what Paul is confronting is that false view of justification, which, by the way, even in its own language, is contrary to itself. It's contradictory. Um, because if you, have all, if, 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 if you are saved by your merits and works, but you have already committed transgressions against the law then how can you justify yourself by doing what you was already supposed to do? It's basically the whole that one good deed makes the bad deed void. I I couldn't remember how that was actually said. Uh, but, um, but, But it's the idea that that a good, a good deed will eliminate a bad deed. And so that if you do one thing good, you know, if you help an older lady cross the street, then that negates the um, lusting after the younger lady crossing the street. That type of thinking. That you can do a good deed and if you do enough good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. It's this cooperative type thing. As if you have any righteousness when you don't. Because a transgressor is a transgressor. So is a murderer let off because he does a good deed to help someone preserve life after he has murdered somebody? So if he murders someone and then another guy has, uh, you know has some kind of a cardiac arrest or something, he performs CPR and saves that life, does that saving that life, does it erase? Does it justify him for the bad deed, for the murder? That's absurd, right? And so this cooperative type thinking that was coming into uh, the churches of Galatia, Paul is, was, uh, he's opposing um, because it produces a lot of evil, as we have seen him discuss earlier. Well, now he has shifted his focus from doing away with the whole idea that we are justified by any aspects of our own works or merits 
that we are justified completely and entirely by faith in Jesus Christ. Then he turns his attention now to say that those who are justified by faith in Christ, that as he said to the Ephesians, we are his workmanship now in Christ, and he he creates a new creature unto good works. And so Paul is now turning his attention, as he is focused on the wrong use of the law, he's now Uh, making application of the right use of the law. And what we're going to look at this morning is the power to fulfill the law for those who have been justified by faith through Jesus Christ. Verse 13, for you, brethren, chapter 5, sorry, Galatians 5, verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So we see here in Paul's right use of the law, one of the things that is evident in that the right use of the law um, is only through the Spirit, and it's evidenced by love. So he says the law can be fulfilled in one word, and like a good preacher, then he went on to give several more words, right? You know, in conclusion, um, but he says all the law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he gives this admonition to Christians and to the church. He says, so the law is only fulfilled through love. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. In other words, he was warning them about not fulfilling the law. Because the fulfillment of the law is expressed in love. Disobedience to the law is expressed in hatred and chaos and dissension and division. 
And so he says, you've been called to liberty, but don't use liberty as an excuse. We take good things, and then we use those good things to excuse our bad things, right? Liberty is a good thing. Liberty is a good word. It's a good thing to possess. But he said, don't use liberty as an opportunity, as an excuse to the flesh. And here's the reason why. Because the law is fulfilled in one word, love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So therefore, don't bite and devour one another, or you'll be consumed by one another. Well, this morning, what we're wanting to do is to consider the power to fulfill the law. So we are so messed up because we've been deceived by legalists and libertarians and by every other faction and fraction of every group under the sun. And so we are really messed up today. We live in a time of great chaos and confusion. And, and the reason is because there's all these crazy choices, you know. I mean, uh, we, ha- we are living in a time where where every option has been taken and repackaged into so many different packages that it's just really overwhelming. And for a lot of people, the overwhelming part of it uh, uh, is really a, a, a conflict in their mind and in their heart, and, and it, it really causes them to struggle in their assurance. Because it's just so many things out there that, you know, we kind of have the idea that, um, that what we have must not be right then. We're kind of overwhelmed. It's kind of like guys who are always trying to distort certain doctrines. I mean, it's, it's just a tactic that man uses, and, and you'll run into these guys. And, um, I mean, they'll just be like, well, it's this, 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 and this because of Romans 8.28 and because of Deuteronomy 31.6 and because of Psalm chapter 61 and because of this. And they, they just overwhelm you and you're like, wow, they must know what they're talking about. They must be right. Right? Isn't that what happens? It's just, that, it's just this information dump. And it's so overwhelming. It's like, how are you going to pick through it all? So you think there's got to be something there. And so there's so many choices out there today and so many explanations about everything. And if you're not able to really get down to the root of everything, it's going to be a struggle. It's like this crazy vine that's just weaved and wrapped through everything and all these vines and stuff. And so if if you're not able to get back to the root and find out that there's really very few choices... Very few choices. And so that's what Paul is kind of doing here. There's very few choices when it comes to the law. You know, they're wanting the Judaizers and the legalists there in uh, the churches of Galatia, they're wanting all this pomp and revelry and showboating, right? Right? Isn't that what the Pharisees wanted? But Paul says, really, you know, when it comes to the fulfillment of the law, first of all, we're not justified by the law, we're justified by faith. But when it comes to fulfilling the law, 
It's really pretty simple. You get down to it. Fulfilling the law is love, not fulfilling the law is hate. Hate produces not fulfilling the law. Love produces fulfilling the law. The law is fulfilled by love. This is why Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, strength. And then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So even Jesus saw that, or Jesus proclaimed, not even. (laughs) uh, But Jesus proclaimed that the law was love being demonstrated. And so we're so messed up today that, you know, we're, we're so confused, even, even in relation to any conversation about the law. And so we run f- from one extreme to the other. But ultimately, when you get down to it, there's really only two choices. You know, you have legalists and libertarians and all their little other subgroups. And it is endless. But really, those two groups are the same. Because ultimately, what you get down to is either the true validity of the law or that the law is not valid. So ultimately, what we do is we view, the law of the, we view God's law as void. What we are really saying when we're talking about the law is our righteousness. Our self-righteousness. That's what the Judaizers were really talking about. Their works. That they were somehow meritoriously deserving of heaven. That their works satisfies God's standard of righteousness and his holiness. But it really isn't the law they're talking about. It's their own self-righteousness that they have created by their own standards, not by God's standards. I mean, you start going through God's standards, and it takes one little phrase to understand that you don't have any merits or righteousness when it comes to God's standards. Very first thing. Have no other gods before him. In other words, to never love anything else more than God. Can't even get past that one. I mean, not when we seriously think about it. Again, we can, we can, you know, kind of cover over the reality of the situation. But like Jesus wouldn't allow the Pharisees to do that. You know, he, went, he, he goes straight after him. Like with the woman taken in adultery, we don't know what he wrote on the ground, but whatever it was, those Pharisees were brought to shame. And it was just a simple thing. He's who without sin cast the first stone, right? That's what Jesus told them. Okay, so if you're righteous, and if you have righteousness then go ahead, whichever one of you is without sin, cast the first stone. And then he started writing all this stuff in the ground. We have no idea what he wrote, 
But their consciences, it says, convicted them. And they quietly walked out one by one. Well, Jesus, at previous occasions, had done that as well. Remember when he did that with the law in relation to purity? Thou shalt not commit adultery. You know, when we, when we don't fess up to things, that's when we have this false idea of righteousness and, and the superiority and self-righteousness and pharisaicalism and so forth. But Jesus said, <laughs> no, you're not going to walk away from this one with your air of superiority Because I say unto you, he that looks after a woman to lust after her in his heart has committed adultery already. Take that same thing, because even the Bible goes through this in other places, in the apostles, the apostle John. The apostle John says, hey, if you hate somebody, you're a murderer. Have you ever hated somebody? I have. Have you ever had hate in your heart? You're a murderer. Murder is just the demonstration of hatred in the heart. That's where murder comes from. Murder comes from hate that is in hearts. So ultimately what we're saying is that God's standards don't apply. Because we're not going to use God's standards, right? So basically, we say, God's standards don't apply. His void is law. Here is the law. I've written it myself. This is what it is. So we make God's law void. Every different view does that. We turn the grace of God then into lasciviousness, which lasciviousness is anything that is contrary to God's law. And so when we establish our own righteousness, what we are doing is we're turning grace into licentiousness or lasciviousness through our sinful works that we will say are righteous. Right? Is that what we do? So we just redefine everything, replace God's law with a different version, our interpretation which is basically our standard. And so we make the grace oh, we turn the grace of God into licentiousness through our sinful works that we make the standard and by our disobedience to God's standard. So Paul didn't let them off the hook when it came to the doctrine of justification. But now he's not going to let them off the hook when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification. That faith does produce works. Faith does produce love. Matter of fact, it's the very first thing mentioned as the fruit of the Spirit, I believe. (laughs) Now all of a sudden I I lost my confidence as I started trying to go through them. Um, But he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Thankfully I'm not going crazy. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So yeah, let's have a discussion about 
whether there's any validity in the law or not. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So, what Paul is saying here is that faith produces works. That works do not produce justification. So, we need to consider now the power of fulfilling the law. Notice in verse 16, after Paul has already shown that the law is to be fulfilled and that the law is fulfilled through love, he then tells us how. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit. This first part that we're going to notice is the discipline of the Spirit. Now, how many of you like discipline? Anyone like that word? The word discipline? What's the first thing you think of when you think of discipline? I was raised in an older generation. The first thing I think of is my backside on fire. And it was because my father had a paddle, a belt, a switch. My mom, you know, when I was really little, may have had a brush, a spoon, or whatever. I mean, basically, it was whatever they could find in a split second. So if we were outside and there was a tree nearby, it was the thing goes off, and then, then you heard this. That's all the leaves being ripped off. if they would just leave the leaves on it. <laughs> but, nope, the leaves come off, and then that thing is whew, like a whip. So that's what I think of. The very first thing I think of when I think of discipline is that. And discipline is, by the way, correction and punishment. Discipline actually is, in its essence, correction. It may not be punishment, but in its essence, it is correction because there are two types of discipline. There's positive and negative discipline. We talk about, or we used to talk about it. We don't talk about it anymore. But Christianity used to talk about uh, Christian disciplines. And it, it wasn't getting a whipping. That's not what they were talking about. They were actually talking about prayer, Bible reading, They were talking about different means that we were to use, and of course many more in addition to that, that we were to practice. And these things discipline us. Prayer is a discipline for the Christian. It disciplines us and brings us into conformity to the will of God. Now, we've reduced prayer to just, you know, help Grandma Smith with um, whatever it is that she has. And we're not trying to trivialize that because we are to pray for needs, necessities, and so forth. But prayer ultimately is a discipline to the Christian to bring us into conformity 
to the will of God, to surrender our will unto him, which produces faith and trust. So he says, walk in the spirit. In other words, there is to be this discipline, this actual action of things. This practice, this doing of, walking in the Spirit. And Paul says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will first of all not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the transgression of the law. We'll talk about this word fulfilling probably next week. He goes along with some things that were said by the Apostle John. Notice he says that you will not fulfill it. He didn't say that you would never fall, never sin, never have need to confess. No, you'll have lots of needs to confess Walking in the Spirit will actually cause you to confess more than what you even think. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So there's this discipline aspect of walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit will discipline us to walk in a certain way so that our lives will not be filled We will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You see, that's one of the marks that we can distinguish ourselves by. Are we trying to fill our life with the Spirit, or are we trying to fill our life with the lust of our flesh? What are we trying to walk in? What are we trying to be absorbed with? Walk in the Spirit, he says. And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So the Spirit disciplines us. Which also means it becomes very important that we understand what it means to walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit disciplines us so that we do not Fulfill so that we are not filled with the lusts of our flesh. Because you are going to be filled with something. The Spirit disciplines us, though. That's the thing I want us to notice here this morning. We are completely reliant upon the Spirit. We should be completely reliant upon the Spirit. That is the reason why we should give Every bit of concentration and effort so that our Christian lives are defined by walking in the Spirit. In Ezekiel chapter 36, this is the promise that we have from the Old Testament in what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was going to do or that God was going to do in the New Covenant. And he said, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. 
This is also what is stated in Jeremiah chapter 33 concerning the new covenant that would come through the Messiah, that he would write his law in their hearts. But notice, even in the promise of the Old Testament, the promise is that it's going to have to be in the Spirit. When we do not walk in the Spirit, we will absolutely, 100%, fulfill the lust of our flesh. This is why Paul says, as he gives the glorious good news of the gospel in Romans chapter 8, and he says, Therefore there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And that should cause us to go, woohoo! I mean, that should cause us to rejoice. There's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. The remission of your sins. That's something to be thankful for. See, the problem is we just don't think it's really that big of a deal, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's because we're a bunch of Pharisees. We don't think it's a very big deal. We don't think it's a very big deal that the degrading, filthy desires of your flesh. But we're good Baptists. We're like, well, I didn't act on it. <laughs> that makes it okay. No, you have a lot. And if you don't know you do, Jesus said, by the way, he who is forgiven of much will love much. He who is forgiven of little will love little. So if you see your sins as little, you're going to have very little love. In other words, think of it this way in the whole context and picture. If you have very little sins that you have been forgiven of you're going to love little which means that you're not going to you're going to fulfill the law little as a christian hmm viewing your sins as little actually produces more sin but anyway back to the good news of the gospel there is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus and whoo hallelujah Thanks be to God. Praise the Lord. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And that's what the rest of that chapter is all about. That there's no condemnation for those who walk after the Spirit. But then Paul defines what it means to walk after the Spirit. In verse number 4 of Romans 8, so in Romans 8, 1, he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then in verse 4, he says this, that, because he talks about Jesus coming to bring us salvation, and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and what Adam could not do for us. And Jesus did this, 
that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. First of all, that shows that as a Christian, our lives are to reflect the holiness of God. We are required to walk in the Spirit. We are required to walk in love. But notice, this is only taking place for those who are walking after the Spirit. There has to be a desire and a seeking before you can walk after the Spirit. And of course, we have a problem nowadays because there really just isn't any desire. There's not really any desire in our culture. There's not really any desire in our churches that we would walk after the law. Now, we, we definitely want to walk after our own law. And we want everybody to walk after our law. You know, if I don't like wire rim glasses, then it's a sin and you shouldn't do it. We want everybody to walk after our law. But what we need to see is actually that there is a desire amongst Christians to walk after the Spirit. So that the law would be fulfilled in us. That there would be true righteousness and holiness. That we would truly reflect that God has put his law in our inward parts. And that he has written them in our hearts. So that he might be our God and we might be his people. Because you can know who the God of any person or people is by whom, by whose law they obey. If the God of the Bible is my God, then I will want to walk in his ways. I may not always. But there should be a desire, right? To walk after the Spirit. To walk after His ways. To do what is pleasing to Him. As Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? That's not lordship. (laughs) If you confess that Jesus is Lord, then we should desire to walk in Him. The assurance is that walking in the Spirit will produce righteousness in us. That's why Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But notice the word is walk. It's actually not desire. That was what is implied that I inserted, right? That, you know... 
that there does have to be a desire first because I'm saying that things are so bad in our society now, things are so bad in the church, things are so bad amongst Christians now that there's not even a desire. But he doesn't say desire the Spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He says walk. The word is actually walk. It's actually do Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You see, there is this discipline in walking. In the military, they make you walk. It's like, so, you know, you get out of the military, and they're like, writing, what's your job skills? I walk a long ways. I can walk. Because that's what we did. We walked and we walked and we walked and we walked. And when they got tired of walking, then they'd make us run. And then when we got tired of running, they'd make us walk. And we walked and we walked and walked. Everything was about walking. It's a discipline. That's why they put them in formation and make them walk. To discipline them. There is a discipline, and that discipline is in the walking. There is action that must take place. And this is why we're told over and over again. In Colossians, Paul says, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Now there's a statement that needs to be utilized today. If you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, then walk in him. Paul says to the Philippians, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You know what he's saying? Walk in the Spirit. Practice. Discipline. See, the problem that we have today is that we don't have practicing Christianity. We don't have practicing Christians. We don't practice anything. We don't have times that we go to prayer and to the Lord. We don't practice anything. We don't have any disciplines. There's, there's, there's not aspects in our lives where we are, we are actively engaged in walking in the Spirit. And then we wonder why everything's crumbling. Wonder why Islam is growing. It's because they have practices. They practice. When you're practiced, you become good at things. When you don't practice, you lose. And the reason why we are losing is because we don't practice. We must walk in the Spirit. In other words, we must put our faith into action. And that's where we're going to close here this morning because I'm past time and I need to redeem the time for the rest of the morning. Father, we pray.
that you would help us to walk in the Spirit so that we would not fulfill the lust of our flesh. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk in your Spirit so that the law might be fulfilled in us. Father, we pray that you would help us to walk in your Spirit so that we might be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, which first of all is love. To love you with all of our being and to love each other as ourselves. May this be our resolve here this morning. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.